Jill Lepore is a distinguished historian and a brilliant writer and storyteller. In fact, she regularly brings history and storytelling together. Here's an instance in which she takes us back to 1787. It is written in elegant clerical hand on four sheets of parchment, each two feet wide and a bit more than two feet high, about the size of an 18th century newspaper, but finer, and made not from the pulp of plants, but from the hide of an animal. Some of the ideas it contains reach across ages and oceans to antiquity. More were, at the time, newfangled, we the people. The first three words of the preamble are giant and gothic. They slant left, and because most of the rest of the words slant right, the writing zigzags. It had taken four months to debate and to draft, including two weeks to polish the prose, neat work done by a committee of style. By Monday, September 17, 1787, it was ready. That afternoon, the Constitution of the United States of America was read out loud in a chamber on the first floor of Pennsylvania's State House, where the delegates to the Federal Convention had assembled to subscribe their names to a wholly new system of government to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Benjamin Franklin rose from his chair and wished to be heard, but at 81, he was too tired to make another speech. He had written down what he wanted to say, though, so James Wilson, a Pennsylvania delegate decades Franklin's junior, read his remarks addressed to George Washington, presiding. Mr. President, he began, I confess that there are several parts of this Constitution which I do not at present approve, but I am not sure I shall never approve them. Franklin liked to swaddle argument with affability as if an argument were a colicky baby. The more forceful his point, the more tightly he swaddled it. What he offered that day was a well-bundled statement about changeability. I find that there are errors here, he explained, but who knows, someday I might change my mind. I often do. For having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions, even on important subjects, which I once thought right, but found to be otherwise. That people so often believe themselves to be right is no proof that they are. Most men, indeed, as well as most sects in religion, think themselves in possession of all truth, and that wherever others differ from them, it is so far error. The only difference between the Church of Rome and the Church of England, Franklin said, is that the former is infallible, while the latter is never in the wrong. Franklin closed with a plea. I cannot help expressing a wish that every member of the convention who may still have objections to it would with me, on this occasion, doubt a little of his own infallibility and to make manifest our unanimity, put his name to this instrument. He doubted that any other assembly would, at just that moment, 
have been able to draft a better one. Thus I consent, sir, to this Constitution because I expect no better and because I am not sure that it is not the best. Words of Benjamin Franklin, reported by historian Jill Lepore in her book The Story of America, Essays on Origins. Award-winning writer and historian Jill Lepore will deliver the Wilkes University Max Rosen Lecture in Law and Humanities on Sunday, March 26th at 2 o'clock at the Dorothy Dixon Dart Center for the Performing Arts on the campus in Wilkes-Barre. Jill Lepore is the David Woods Kemper Professor of American History and Affiliate Professor of Law at Harvard University. She is also a staff writer at The New Yorker. Other essays and reviews have appeared in The New York Times, Times Literary Supplement, Foreign Affairs, Yale Law Journal, American Scholar, and American Quarterly. Her works have been widely translated and anthologized. In another of her studies, titled These Truths, uh, History of the United States, Lepore writes, citing that title, This was the question of autumn, and in a way it has been the question of every season since. The question of every rising and setting of the sun, on rainy days and snowy days, on clear days and cloudy days, at the clap of every thunderstorm. Can a political society really be governed by reflection and election, by reason and truth, rather than by accident and violence, by prejudice and deceit? Is there any arrangement of government, any constitution, by which it's possible for a people to rule themselves justly and fairly? and as equals through the exercise of judgment and care? Or are their efforts, no matter their constitutions, fated to be corrupted, their judgment muddled by demagoguery, and their reason abandoned for fury? She continues, the American experiment rests on three political ideas. These truths, Thomas Jefferson called them, political equality, natural rights, and the sovereignty of the people. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, Jefferson wrote in 1776 in a draft of the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these ends, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The roots of these ideas are as ancient as Aristotle and as old as Genesis, and their branches spread as wide as the limbs of an oak, but they are this nation's founding principles. It was by declaring them that the nation came to be. After Benjamin Franklin read Jefferson's draft, he picked up his quill, scratched out the words sacred and undeniable, and suggested that these truths were instead self-evident. This was more than a quibble. Truths that are sacred and undeniable are God-given and divine, the stuff of religion. Truths that are self-evident are laws of nature, empirical and observable, the stuff of science. This divide has nearly rent the Republic apart. We had a chance to speak by phone with Professor Lepore 
and we asked her about Franklin, quill in hand, scratching out the words of Thomas Jefferson. I take that in a way as an emblem of the importance of amendment. And one of the ways in which the framers of the Constitution understood it really was, as you say, in an age of enlightenment that was obsessed with the notion of progress, scientific progress, moral progress, improvement of any kind, not growth per se, but moral progress at the at the heart of technological change, a, a way that we don't think about progress anymore. We think about progress in a quite different way. But the Enlightenment sensibility regarding progress required always amendment. So the desire to craft constitutions, written constitutions, which were an invention of that age, was attached to the idea that that to put something down in writing to make it stable and fixed was dangerous, that the way to contend with that danger was to make sure that whatever you wrote down, you were willing to, to amend as necessary with the passage of time and as circumstances and conditions change. And one of the ways that the framers understood that was the metaphor that they commonly used to write about the Constitution What is, was that it was a machine that had parts that needed to be intricately balanced with one another. Our system of separation of powers and checks and balances, framers thought about that really as kind of clockworks, right? And a clockwork doesn't just go of its own forever. It's a clock break. <laughs> so gears wear down, something snaps, something gets out of balance and, and, and need to be fixed all the time. So My work at the moment is about the history of attempts to amend the Constitution and what it means that we can no longer do that. The state constitutions are eminently amendable, but the U.S. Constitution has not been effectively amended, meaningfully amended, for half a century now. And that's what you'll perhaps be addressing then with us, making amends, revising the U.S. Constitution when you come to talk to us? Yeah, yeah. And I've been doing this project for a while now, compiling kind of a big data set of every attempt to amend the Constitution. There are thousands of them, petitions to Congress, resolutions introduced in Congress, amendments proposed in party platforms or by social reformers, by activists, by individuals, by former justices, and thinking about what that history means, what it tells us if we look at that history. Because I think people, we know that there are 27 ratified amendments, but not that most people can name them, but but people don't know about all those that failed and what that record of failure means and, and maybe what kind of inspiration it can offer for thinking about kind of good government renewal. Don't we think most recently of the celebrations to mark the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, and all of the long and mighty struggle to bring that about? Right, right. And people know about the Equal Rights Amendment. It took 50 years to get it ratified, and immediately following its ratification, so it was ratified as the 19th Amendment in 1920, and then, you know, after, as you say, after decades of political struggle, it was subsequently almost entirely ignored. I mean, women gained the right to vote, but the, the amendment was meant to do more than that. It could have left a much bigger constitutional trail and did not. But in 1923, a number of women's rights activists proposed the Equal Rights Amendment for the very first time. It took 50 years to get that through Congress. It was finally passed Congress in 1972, as you know, was widely expected to be ratified very quickly and was ultimately derailed by the Stop ERA movement. There's an attempt now to to get the ERA ratified. There's a, there's a lot of litigation going on. There are people who insist that, in fact, it has been ratified that the required number of states have ratified it. Three-quarters of the states have to ratify a constitutional amendment for it to become part of the Constitution. So there's a lot going on at the moment with regard to amendment. 
there are, you know, there are many conservative amendments that have lately been proposed, but there's a fairly sizable movement among some limited government conservatives who want to hold a new constitutional convention, which is a proposal that has passed the legislatures in, I believe, 24 states. So there's a lot of prospect of constitutional change by way of ratification and convention in the coming years, and it's a good opportunity to think about that history. You mentioned the state constitutions can be amended, and you've written about Pennsylvania as an example in the early days as the states were individually putting together their own constitutions at the same time of the U.S. Constitution, and that Pennsylvania was pretty distinctive. It was pretty radical. Yeah, Pennsylvania had by far the most democratic constitution, um, one of the adopted in 1776. There was a single house of legislature, a lower house didn't believe in an upper house, it was then too aristocratic. There was a, a plural executive because they didn't want to give power to a governor, so there were a bunch of, pe- bunch of people. The legislature could remove any justices from the state Supreme Court for any reason at any time. The legislators served one-year terms, and then for any law to be passed, it had to be posted publicly for a year for public comment, and suffrage was extended to all white men, which was a, a radical proposition at the time. But that perfect, that constitution, the 1776 Pennsylvania Constitution, also had a really pretty interesting amendment provision, which was established this thing called the Council of Censors, but it meant that every seven years, this group, a kind of mini-constitutional convention called the Council of Censors, was to meet to do two things. One, to review all the laws passed in the previous seven years and make sure they were constitutional because the courts didn't have that power. And two, to look at whether there needed to be amendments made to the Constitution. And so when that first meeting was held seven years after the original 1776 Constitution, so at the end of 1783, they they couldn't agree. The, the council censors couldn't agree. A majority wanted to hold another constitutional convention and get rid of all the things that they thought of as excessively democratic. They wanted to write a new constitution, which would include a governor, in which there would be an upper house of the legislature, uh, in which the judiciary would be independent. But they needed a two-thirds majority within the council to call for a new constitutional convention. They, They failed to achieve it. So they didn't do it until 1790. But Pennsylvania's experimentation with what a new government should look like, what a written constitution should look like, what an amendment provision might be, what a ratification process would be, whether a convention was necessary for people to get a new constitution. These are things that the states were experimenting with in the 1770s and early 1780s and were foundational to the eventual drafting of the, the new U.S. Constitution in 1787. Really, other than Massachusetts, none was more important than Pennsylvania's 1776 Constitution and the struggle over it, which began, you know, as it was being written. We mentioned Benjamin Franklin, but you have a way of writing about history that is so engaging and so head-heart together. And you have a study of Jane Franklin. When you're telling us about Benjamin Franklin's sister, not only what does that tell us about the women in the time, but also about a way of doing history. Yeah. So I wrote a book a bunch of years ago called The Book of Ages, Life and Opinions of Jane Franklin. There were 17 Franklin children. Benjamin was the youngest boy and Jane was the youngest girl. They were quite alike. Um, They were really thought of as twins when they were little Benny and Jenny. And their lives diverged completely. They grew up in Boston. Franklin ran away to Philadelphia when he was 17. And Jane was stuck at home and ended up marrying at 15, an extraordinarily young age. She was no doubt pregnant. She went on to have 12 children. Eleven of them died before she did. She lived a life of terrible poverty. She barely learned to read read and write, only learned those things because her brother taught her before he ran away. 
she was his most important correspondent their whole lives together. He never forgot her. He sent her books all the time from Philadelphia during the Revolutionary War when Boston was seized by the British. He came to Cambridge and rescued her, brought her to live in Philadelphia with him. Um, and, you know, he thought a lot and wrote a lot, even as poor Richard in his Proverbs, about the nature of inequality. You know, one half the world doesn't know how the other half lives is a poor Richard proverb, and it really is as much about his sister and himself as it is about, about anything else. He thought a lot about what it meant to leave someone behind in really in ignorance, in obscurity and ignorance and poverty, the things that he escaped to reputation and wealth, uh, knowledge and fame. And uh, it really influenced how Franklin thought about the new nation. And, and as a drafter of that original Pennsylvania Constitution, he was on the committee at the first constitutional convention that drafted Pennsylvania's 1776 Constitution while Jane was living in his house. You know, you think about its radical demands for political equality. And I, I think you can see the influence of his relationship with his sister. I think we would understand the nation's past better if we understood that the inequality in our lives today has origins that go very far back. And unless you study those origins, it's quite difficult to contemplate their remedy. Award-winning writer and historian Jill Lepore. Jill Lepore is the David Woods Kemper Professor of American History and Affiliate Professor of Law at Harvard University. She is also a staff writer at The New Yorker, and she will present a program on Sunday, March 26th, this Sunday, at 2 o'clock. She will deliver the Wilkes University Max Rosen Lecture in Law and Humanities at the Dorothy Dixon Dart Center for the Performing Arts on the Wilkes campus, 239 South River Street in Wilkes-Barre. The Rosen Lecture was established at Wilkes in 1980 in recognition of Judge Max Rosen's exceptional contributions to public service. It was established by his former law clerks, his law firm, Rosen, Jenkins, and Greenwald family and friends. The Rosen Lecture is free and open to the public, though registration is strongly suggested and you can register at wilkes.edu slash rosen, R-O-S-E-N-N. Award-winning writer and historian Jill Lepore to deliver the Rosen Lecture at Wilkes University this Sunday, March 26th at 2 in the afternoon at the Dart Center, 239 South River Street in Wilkes-Barre. Admission is free, though registration is suggested, wilkes.edu slash Rosen.